0: Hello and welcome to the Mejlis podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Panier, host of the Medjly's and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. In May last year, it appeared Central Asia was politically moving away from Russia. Russia was a toxic partner after the Kremlin launched its full-scale war on Ukraine in febu- late February 2022. The governments of the five Central Asian states have been working quickly since then to improve their relations with many other countries who had previously been on the fringe of Central Asian foreign policy. And yet, all five Central Asian presidents just attended the Victory Day Parade in Moscow, and all five will meet on May 18th, 19th in Xi'an, China, for a summit with the Chinese president, whose country has also been exerting huge influence in Central Asia for more than two decades. What has changed and what is changing in Central Asian geopolitics? To discuss all this, I am joined by Nargiz Kasenova, a senior fellow and director of the Program on Central Asia at Harvard Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies, Paul Stronsky, a senior fellow at Carnegie Endowment's Russia and Eurasia program, where his research focuses on Russia's relationship with Central Asia and the Caucasus, and Fran Olmos, senior researcher for the Spanish-based GeoPol 21 Research Center, where he specializes in Central Asian affairs, and is also a research fellow at the London-based Foreign Policy Center. Thank you all for joining me. Paul, I want to start with you. Um, okay, it was kind of a surprise that all five of the Central Asian presidents showed up at the, at the Victory Day parade in Moscow. I mean, you know, l- last week at this time, Friday, just before the, the Victory Day parade, only the Kyrgyz president had con- was confirmed as going to this. And then all the presidents, all of the other four Central Asian presidents, all of a sudden quickly joined in and announced that they were going to show up at this, this parade. What, what does that tell us about Central Asia's relationship with Russia right now?
1: uh well thanks for having me and and one of the things i think this does say it, it definitely is a surprise it didn't look like this was going to happen uh and you know from somebody sitting in washington right now it's an unfortunate surprise uh but not all that uh shocking you know what we see is that uh moscow still has summoning power uh what we see is uh that moscow continues to view uh central asia uh as a key part of its neighborhood uh, and one that is essential for showing that it is uh, not totally isolated uh, from the rest rest of the world. Uh, I think what we also saw, we saw, you know, the um, Lukashenko of Belarus there. Uh, that certainly was not pleasant company for any of them. Uh, we also saw the Armenian uh, leader there. Um, and if you look at Armenian uh, relations right now, they're also very tight, tense with, with Russia. So I think, you know, this is, you know, they're certainly coming. Uh, they're certainly, you know, showing some deference, willing to continue this this diplomatic dance um, w- with Moscow uh, and, you know, realizing that Moscow can cause them a lot of harm. Uh, so when Moscow summons, they come. And I think Moscow certainly put a lot of pressure, uh, particularly in those last few days, uh, to make sure that they had uh, some sort of, you know, friendly people com- uh, uh, coming to Moscow uh, for that parade. But, you know, from a, from a Western perspective, it, it, it doesn't look great for these countries, um, but I'm not totally surprised that it happened.
0: Great, thank you, um, Nargis, uh, You know, th- from the Central Asian perspective, what what did I mean? What did it really cost them to go to something like this, right? Uh, rather than hedging their bets, you know, why not do it? There is no harm in showing up. Understandably, Ukraine, besides Western countries, complained about it, but really, in the end, uh, from the from the point of view of the Central Asian presidents, what was the harm in doing this?
2: Well. There the, the was a price tag for uh, for going to the, per, to the parade. that's why uh, Central Asian leaders, um had been dragging their feet and basically decided to go the, the very last minute, except for Shaparov, as you rightly uh, rightly pointed out, because it affects their, um, their international standing. And, uh, well, it's, you know, Ukrainians didn't like it, Americans didn't like it, Europeans didn't like it, uh, and the domestic public di- didn't like it, particularly in uh Kazakhstan and, and Kyrgyzstan, uh, so so it's it is diplomatic dance, and I, I would also say it's brinksmanship because uh, because the, there are risks, right, that uh, that need to be taken into into account and um, impacted the decision. They didn't want to go, uh, so the summoning clearly the summoning power of Moscow is weakening. The Kremlin is more desperate. I can't imagine Putin, you know, before making these calls uh, uh, to uh, to heads of Central Asian states, you know, kind of convincing them, uh, convincing them to to come and uh, attend the parade. Now, now they are desperate. They want um, somebody in, right? And uh, they have more leverage uh, I- in Central Asia. Uh, so, so. So, so the, the, there are pri- price tags, and there is brinksmanship, and that's that's something basically we had we had to do. They had to do, uh, not not me, but the leaders, because the vulnerabilities are high, dependencies are there, and they need to be very careful in the way they manage relations with Russia. And if I can add one more thing, uh, Bruce, uh, the uh, well, if you look at uh, Tokayev's visit, there was an attempt to kind of mitigate damage by kind of emphasizing the narrative that it's our victory as well. It's not just Russian victory. So when Tokayev went there, he paid tribute to the uh, Kazakhs who who uh, who died in the war, and so on and so forth. So so that that was kind of a bit of uh, you know. Uh, a bit of an excuse, and if I, I, I'm not sure, I'm calling it right. But there was an attempt to uh, to a little bit modify the uh, the narrative.
0: No, no, that's a good point, and I believe he v- even visited his uncle, or his uncle was yes, in, yes. Yeah, his, yes, his uncle's grave is there. So that was something. Uh Japarov also, I believe, went to the the monument that they have um outside moscow very close to there
2: so it's um, not just support of uh, support of putin but it's also you know okay okay it's it's our victory as well
0: right right okay no this is a good point this is a good point um you know and it, this i'd like to mention that the, the the attendance at the victory day parade this year stands in stark contrast to the attendance two years ago when the only foreign leader was tajikistan's president Emomali rahman so fran i want to bring you in here um you know the the Turkmen president Turkmenistan, anyway, is arguably one of the countries that has has be- become more put put more under the Russian thumb. I'll put it that way. Put more under the Russian thumb since the war started in in Ukraine. Uh, and um, you know, Tajikistan is another one. Uh, the, the certainly Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan have shown a little bit of resistance, but Turkmenistan and, and Tajikistan, no. Uh, if anything, if they've shown that they're absolutely. Uh, under the influence of Russia, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about Turkmenistan's relationship with Russia since February two thousand
3: twenty-two? Yeah, sure. Um, well, what we have seen in the past uh, year, year and a bit since the the invasion of Ukraine, I mean, we clearly have seen a rapprochement of uh, Russia and Turkmenistan. I think at the initiative of Moscow, to be honest, last year we saw a number of high profile visits, more than would normally see. On an average year, of ministers, speakers of uh, Senate, of Duma, and so on and so forth, to uh, to Turkmenistan. Also, you know, in the so far this year, in the five months of 2023, the trend uh, has continued. Um, so there's clearly uh, an improvement in the relations between between these two those, these two countries, which was not always the case um, under the well previous regime. Let's put it like this, but. Uh, the question is why why this uh, this rapprochement uh, between between Moscow and and Ashgabat, and we probably have to to look towards uh, transit uh, north south transit corridors that Russia now needs that will pass through Turkmenistan necessarily. And also, energy. Uh, it's clearly that uh, Russia doesn't want Turkmenistan to explore energy westwards by any any way shape or form, and I don't think the Turkmen regime is also. Willing to do it at the time, but uh, I mean, at a time where Russia has been more isolated in the international scene, they've been looking toward, let's say, core <laughs> friendships and friendships is a big word, but countries where they have a they have a cloud, they have a potential influence. And also, let's not forget that in the last year and a half, we've seen this sort of power transition, but not really in Turkmenistan, which happened at the very same time as the war in Ukraine starting to unfold. So there's also that component or, you know, we don't know if uh, Moscow sort of signed off on that, uh, on those plans, but it's it's quite likely. Um, so, yeah, we've clearly seen uh, an interesting change in the in the dynamic of their relations. We've also seen uh, Moscow continuing to purchase uh, turbine gas, although less in 2022 than in the previous year. The war in Ukraine has had also an, an effect on that, but there's been clearly a, a new dynamic where you know the so-called uh, neutrality of Turkmenistan has probably been uh, called into question with this new um, new uh, movement towards uh, towards Moscow.
0: Mm-hmm, thanks. Uh, and, you know, Paul, a uh, friend just brought up energy. Uh, it kind of works the other way too. Russia's uh, Russia might not be able to provide the security guarantees that they provided previously in Central Asia. But um, what are they doing with with energy supplies to try to compensate for a loss, uh, some loss of influence in the security sphere?
1: you know they are certainly seeing energy uh, as an important tool uh, that they can can try particularly this is a region that has uh, had some a lot of energy shortages uh, over the past you know year um, and you know have had perennially um, although you know some countries are very energy uh, wealthy um, it's they're not necessarily those resources are not necessarily going to the populations or or broadly across the populations. So we've seen that um, that issue and, and that is something that that um, Moscow is certainly um, playing on. You know, one of the things that I think is is quite interesting about what we're seeing though is you know b- before 2022, you know, Moscow had a fair amount of, of, of soft power. In the region, I think that is certainly declining. Um, And what they have is they either have you know far more coercive power or coercive soft power. Um, It's that sort of you know you you come there's there's sort of threats. Um, Everybody knows that that Moscow can can use these levers uh, against them. Uh, So uh, you know what we're seeing is we're seeing you know a lot of engagement, um, a lot of efforts to placate Moscow. Uh, and to sort of uh, minimize some of those, uh, those risks um, as these countries kind of uh, diversify a little bit, uh, seek ways to diversify um, against uh, Moscow. But the sheer reality is this is an isolated part of the world. It's hard to reach every other you know, global market. And uh, that also provides Moscow with a lot of leverage moving forward.
0: Okay, thank you. Okay, let's let's move the Central Asian leaders along because next week they're all going to be together once again in China for a summit with the Chinese president. Uh, Nargiz, uh, how do you read this move? Pa- just part of continued policy with with China, or is there a new a new relationship, a new emphasis on relationship on relations with China?
2: I think it's uh, to a large extent it is a continuation, right? Uh, China Central Asia relations. Have been, you know, growing better and bigger, and you know, over the past over the past three decades. But but the war in Ukraine definitely gave it another boost, and the kind of the balance has has shifted. the the role of um, The role of Russia as the regional leader is sort of has been negatively uh, negatively eff- affected by what Russia has been doing. And it's sort of you mentioned the coercive power. The coercive power is definitely there, and there is, you know, uh, there is fear of Russia using this coercive coercive power. And uh, clearly, Russia feels less constraints uh, to to do that. But but the legitimacy of Russia as the regional leader is down. Uh, and um, and against that, China looks better. China China is kind of. Gains in legitimacy where Russia is uh, is losing it. So we see uh, Central Asian states leaning more onto China now, as as a partner, as a provider, to some extent, provider of security, as as a, you know, a, an economic power that can invest, they can do trade, that can help them to uh, to diversify. Uh, so all these things that China already had been providing now kind of there is more need for that. And it seems China uh, China is ready to oblige and uh, the the upcoming summit is uh, is one example of that.
0: Uh-huh. Thank you. Um, you know friend, what about the debt trap, the Chinese debt trap? Uh, How wary should the Central Asians be about, you know, clearly they're losing Russia as a partner, including as an economic and trade partner. Uh, Last year was a good year, but you can't expect that to last over the the near term future. I think every year probably be a little bit less. How reliable is China considering how deeply in debt some of these Central Asian countries are?
3: Well, this is a factor that uh, plagues or affects the relationship, especially with uh, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Um, so I mean, it's it's a it's a double on the on the um, investments and and the funds lended by mostly the the Exim Bank uh, from China. It's a bit of a double edged sword. On the one hand, it's it's helping this country to build infrastructure. On the other hand, it's tying them closer, whether they like it or not, uh, to to Beijing in the in the future. Now the question is probably not at this moment in time, but it's more over the you know throughout the next years when as long as they, how they're going to be able to repay these this debts. So, and especially in the case of Tajikistan, where the regime is more uh, less transparent, let's put it like this, and there's more much more corruption, we we will see if, you know, this translates into mining concessions, translates into, who knows, uh, exchanging territory. I mean, 10 over a decade ago, Tajikistan city territory to China, nothing to do with debt or repaying debt. But it does um, have a quite of a worrying uh, precedent this, uh, for this for these two countries. So, I mean, they cannot do much about it at the time being. I mean, they they need those those funds. They, you know, we had apart from the their economy is probably not the most brilliant. Plus, on top of that, we had the pandemic, we had the war in Ukraine. So, things are not looking good from an economic perspective. And you know, there's there's not much that can be done in that in that aspect. But of course, I mean, that doesn't mean that they cannot. To leverage other other items, especially Tajikistan when it comes to, to security, as, as we have seen uh, China being uh, worried or concerned of uh, any uh, danger that could spill from Afghanistan via uh, Tajikistan into its own territory, hence the base that opened a few years ago and the investments done in Chinese uh, security and facilities along the Afghan-Tajik border. So, there's not much uh, that they could do. These two countries, they have to keep an eye on it. So I wouldn't be that too optimistic in that regard. But uh, it's the future when it comes to repaying those debts that will tell us what the story will look like.
0: Okay, thanks, and you, know, Paul. I got to give you a chance to to talk about this too. But for, as much as you could from the Chinese perspective, I mean, there's there's a symbolism even about next week's meeting, right? And, uh, that it's being held in Xi'an. It could have been held in Shanghai because four of the five. Central Asian countries in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. It could have been held in Beijing, capital of China. But the, you know this one's in Xi'an. And I, you get the feeling that this is almost a special pick for a venue because, uh, of course, the Chinese emperor from a couple of millennia ago uh, was living in Xi'an when it was then called Chang'an, when they first established contacts with the Central Asians. So there seems to be something of a Silk root connection that they're trying to, to imply with this whole meeting. But how does China look at their relations with Central Asia, you know, they, they haven't really pressed Russia's weakness. But how are they looking at Central Asia now? No understanding that Russia's got one hand tied behind its back, so to speak.
1: Yeah, well, I think uh, you 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 nailed it uh, right there with uh, the symbolism of Xi'an. I mean, I think it's definitely uh, highlighting that uh, China today sees uh, Central Asia uh, as part of its um, backyard uh, as well, and uh, I think. China has always uh, seen that uh, it hasn't really had to worry about it that much because you know Russia was there, the United States were there. It might not have liked all of that, but at least uh, it was they were p- playing stabilizing roles at, at various times. Neither of them are, are there uh, anymore. Um, so I think you know this is you know we we generally see China as a sort of an East Asian, Asian Pacific type of uh, in geopolitical terms. Uh, but for the for for China, I mean Central Asia is. Uh, is just as important um, as, um, you know, Southeast Asia, the the, the South China Sea, um, and all those other areas for its own stability. Uh, and so I think that is, uh, you know, certainly a, a driver in what we see. Um, and so, you know, it'll be quite interesting to sort of see how this all plays out over the next year or so, um, because, you know, China is, um, you know, it has talked a great talk, but it's still, um, you know, it, it has its own economic challenges. Um, I think, you know, many of the Central Asian states, uh, they might not like, you know, uh, the, the tremendous economic clout, uh, but there's not, you know, China's coming with money. Um, uh, the West is coming uh, with sanctions uh, and, you know, other, you uh, people who are who other powers are entering, you know, looking at the region, but China is the one uh, that traditionally has, you know, brought some money, uh, whether or not um, China will be able to live up to some of those uh, expectations. Uh, moving forward, isn't quite clear. But I think, you know, this certainly says uh, China is uh, in the region. Uh, China is connected to the region. um, And these uh, countries are now uh, connected much more closely to China. And I think you just can kind of see some of, you know, the the visa agreements, some of the, you know, the the increase in trade. Um, It also highlights, you know, the pandemic is over and the pandemic was kind of a blip uh, where, you know, we saw a disruption uh, in some of these relationships. But now, you know, uh, China is back in Central Asia. And I think, That the summit in Xi'an certainly um, indicates, uh, at least from the Chinese perspective, uh, that they see themselves as a key part of Central Asia.
0: Great. Thank you. Okay. Let's move on to some of these other players here, too, because there's been. uh, Bruce,
2: can I jump in?
0: Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead.
2: Uh, Very, very, um, very briefly. Um, I I think I I somewhat disagree with what uh, France said. Um, I think China has been investing in. good neighborly relations with uh, with central asia for you know for 30 years and uh, it's important for, for for china to have a very kind of friendly uh, fr- friendly secure neighborhood so and that was important for security purposes, also for the development purposes, because, you know, Xinjiang, Western China is embedded in this kind of uh, uh, surrounding regions, but also it's important for China's uh, standing as a, you know, aspiring global power, or maybe without aspiring, we should uh, strike that. It, it wants this good working functional relations with different regions of the world. And Central Asia is even a neighborhood, so it's even more important. Uh, and that's why the question, the, the question of debt, of course, is there, uh, but I don't think it will do anything that would create animosity in uh, in Central Asian countries. So it would be easier for China to to be benevolent, to forgive some debt, to restructure it, uh, than you know to actually you know push uh, push the countries to the wall and kind of demand uh, demand the payment or big uh, big concessions. Th- that would be my reading of the situation.
0: Uh, Bill, I could just throw in a comment then there too. Um, you know, Paul had mentioned that China has its own economic problems at the moment. There's not likely to be much more big Chinese money coming into Central Asia for a while. Shouldn't that uh, shouldn't that worry the Central Asians? I mean, there's two unfinished projects of the big projects from years ago that they put on the table, the railway, China, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and line D of the, the gas pipeline from Turkmenistan. But other than that, there are no there are no multi billion dollar projects coming from China. So that which is um, good,
2: which is good. But but there is a bigger diversity of these projects, and uh, we see investments in uh, uh, in agribusiness. We see investments in uh, renewable energy sector. So let's see what's going to happen with the with the ICT and you know. So uh, so there is a there is a variety, and definitely the connections are growing, and Central Asian. St- you know, governments are so interested uh, in uh, deepening these relations and having access to Chinese markets, to having Chinese uh, Chinese investments. They are working hard on, you know, making sure there is certification of their products and, and so on and so forth. So I wouldn't worry about that. I think, the yes, the, the, the era of big, big, uh, you know, loans is probably over, but it's not the end of the story. I think we are in stage two now.
0: Okay. Um, thanks. You know, Fran, I want to get to you because I want to talk about some of these other countries. I'd, I'd call them fringe countries, but of course, a lot of them have, have actually had some influence in Central Asia for a while. You know, we were talking about loans and money. Uh, the Central Asians have been turning to uh, the Arab states to see if they could get money now, and it's probably sensing that they already are too too much in debt to China. Um, they've been looking to other countries for security. So Can you talk a little bit about some of the, you know, the, well, Turkey and Iran for a start? And how relations with the Central Asian states have changed with Turkey and Iran since Russia started its war in uh, in the Ukraine last year?
3: Yeah, so I think uh, the most telling case here is that of, of Turkey and the and the Central Asian states, mostly the fourth the, the fourth Turkic ones, so not Tajikistan, although there's also important links there. I mean, at the end of the day, what uh, many of these countries look to, uh, towards Turkey. As a, just another more another alternative to diversify their foreign policy besides Russia, China, and uh, and and the West, so it's just another another useful useful alternative. On the other hand, we see Ankara push uh, quite hard. It's or well, maybe quite harsh is too harsh, but uh, uh, quite uh, it's very encouraged uh, pushing its own agenda, namely the organization of Turkic states from a political point of view. Here we see President Erdogan pushing very hard for term membership, which he still hasn't got despite trying for, for quite a while. There's indications that you know that might happen in the near future, but that was also the case last year and it never it never happened. So in this case they're looking more and it's not just the, the soft power that traditionally comes with Turkey in Central Asia in terms of cultural and you know heritage, history and and so on. But we're looking also more uh, hard power in terms of military agreements uh, cooperation military military hardware not only but probably the most striking thing the the drones but uh, it's not just uh, limited to drones there's also drills military exercises the the German Navy pretty much is all armed with uh, the Turkish vessels and and so on and so forth so the the war in Ukraine has also meant uh, in my opinion that these countries which they're always you know in good terms with with Turkey and you know there's been Better commercial uh, links, also, but probably it's encouraged them even more to uh, to open themselves and to collaborate more with with Ankara, while this plays into into what I think Erdogan is is looking, and there's also the the energy component in in that regard on the aspiration of uh, Turkey becoming a hub. For, for gas for the West. And here we see, again, uh, Erdogan pushing the Turkmen regime to to bring gas westwards. And so far, he has not been successful. So, I mean, let's uh, probably that's not going to happen anytime soon. But it's it's a clear alternative. And when it comes to Iran, there was a bit of, of a frenzy last year in terms of Tokayev went to Tehran, Rahmon went to Tehran, Berdimuhamedov, the, the son, went to Tehran. So we've uh, seen a number of agreements being signed. The the numbers in terms of trade have, have improved, and that uh, in that area the main topic remains transit. I mean, both from an east west uh, perspective and also north south corridor. Iran is, is key, and also it's it's ports in the in the Persian Gulf, uh, Chabahar, it remains key for for the country. So again, it's another way to diversify our foreign policy, but for Iran is mostly related to. To its, uh, to its geographical location and the potential of, of transit uh, for commercial routes.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, and we have reached the halfway point in our discussion, so it's time for me to remind that this is the Mejlis podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. And I'm Bruce Panier, host of the Mejlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. And today we're talking about the shifting foreign policy landscape in Central Asia. And joining me for this discussion are Paul Stronsky, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment's Russia and Eurasia program, where his research focuses on Russia's relationship with Central Asia and the Caucasus. Francis Olmos, senior researcher for the Spanish-based GeoPol 21 Research Center, where he specializes in Central Asian affairs, and also is a research fellow at the London-based Foreign Policy Center, and Nargiz Kasanova, a senior fellow and, and director of the program on Central Asia at Harvard Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. Uh, thanks again for being on the program. Fran, I'm going to pick it right back up with you because I want to give you a chance to uh, talk just briefly about the relationship uh, between Central Asia and the, some of the Arab states. Since last February.
3: Yes. So, I mean, when we talk about Central Asian states, uh, sorry, uh, the Arab states, we normally think about uh, oil and, and fossil fuels. Now, there's there's a very interesting trend being developed for the last couple of years, but especially uh, this year in 2022, which is the, the role played by Saudi Arabia and the UAE in the renewable energy space, mostly for Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. We've seen multi-billion dollar investments uh, that have been signed or earmarked for solar and wind uh, power in both countries, also uh, to a lesser extent for Kyrgyzstan. So there's there's an interesting trend being developed there beyond the, the traditional financing, other, other projects that we might be more familiar with, like uh, the UAE uh, saying they will... Uh, help uh, Turkmenistan develop its Kalkinish gas field and the more, uh, let's say, uh, traditional uh, projects that we come to expect. But that's an interesting uh, trend. Also, uh, we'll see the the Emir of Qatar, he met Tokayev last year. Uh, The Emir of Qatar will visit Uzbekistan this year. We've also seen lots of uh, visits back and forth between the Gulf and Turkmenistan, so there's, they're clear also looking at, uh, at the Persian Gulf as another way to diversify, to look for investment. And like I mentioned, uh, that interesting trend in when it comes to renewable energies, it looks like they're they're, um, they're miles ahead of other other countries in in Central Asia in that regard.
0: Mm-hmm, thank you, uh, Nargis, You know, same and Paul, I'm gonna, you have a chance in this right after Nargis too, but but the same countries. You know they're all uh, do they have some kind of advantage or do you see that there's some kind of advantage in the fact that these are all Islamic countries you know we know that Iran is, is Shiite government but still there's this is kind of a it's not just a shift in trade in some ways but but it's also a shift to a culture that, that Central Asia had a connection with for a thousand years until it was interrupted by the Soviet Union
2: well Affinities are important but but these are such different countries or regions. Um, and uh, each has its own um, its own strengths and weaknesses um, with regard to relations. Turkey, of course, is the closest and um, the I would say the most trusted among external uh, external actors players. Uh, but it's remote, and uh, the uh, well the economic uh, uh, situation is there is difficult. So we don't know how much Turkey can do. Well, what what type of investments and so on and so forth. The ambitions are definitely there. Uh, let's also see what the the elections will bring us. Whether there will be a modification of uh, of Tur- 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 Turkey's foreign policy course. If the opposition comes, it seems that there will be. Um, we can expect some improvement of relations uh, relations with the West and uh, and. Uh, that that might be good also for for us uh, because Turkey is uh, uh, is the bridge uh, that connects our regions via, of course, the South Caucasus with uh, uh, with Europe. The Gulf has plenty of money uh, culturally. I wouldn't say the uh, kind of the, the there is much affinity, but but uh, but you know, of course, uh, the Mecca and Medina there. You know, people go for Hajj and uh, people go for uh, for tourism there, and they buy. Property and and so on and so forth. So, so that's the big advantage, right, of uh, of the Gulf. Iran is the kind of has the weakest the weakest cards. But its strongest card is the geographical situation, and that that they can that would be shortest, uh, sh- the shortest the uh, shortest uh, way to get to the oceans. Uh, so we are waiting what's going to happen um, with the uh, with the sanctions and uh, if. If the sanctions are, are lifted, I would see a big. Up, I would expect a big upsurge in uh, in connections. Okay, thanks, Paul. Oh.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I, I um, first of all, I I fully agree with um, with Nargis um, uh, on Iran, um, uh, and I also, unless those sanctions um, are lifted. It's always going to be a very careful dance uh, because of uh, pushback, particularly from uh, from the United States, uh, and we'll see what you know kind of government the United States has in two years, uh, which could also impact uh, any uh, any of that. Um, on sort of the connections between uh, the Gulf, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar. And uh, Central Asia, um, I would differ a little bit um, from uh, from Nargis. Not so much on the sort of the, yes, you know, common Muslim, common Islamic heritage, uh, but you know, they do see the world differently and, and do have very different um, uh, traditions. Uh, but what I think does bring uh, these countries uh, together um, is they are very similar in their political uh, models and. Um, you know, UAE, Qatar, Saudi Arabia are all, you know, uh, autocracies. Um, they are not free democratic societies. So unlike the West, uh, they are coming in and not asking, you know, those pesky questions that nobody wants to hear. Uh, they uh, do not have that sort of same power as uh, you know the financial power and sort of that 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 clout uh, that that China has uh, and they're not Russia um, so they are a you know and when you look at UAE um, if you've been there you see you know high standards of living you see uh, social safety nets that actually are working much better than what what's working um, in uh, in Central Asia you see Dubai and uh, Abu Dhabi um, you know we're sort of the models for Astana in many ways um, so you sort of see some of these sort of of um uh, particularly among uh, elite levels some of those connections. Um and the other thing that I would also argue is you know UAE, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, you know, they have their ups and downs with the United States but and, and with Europe, but generally, you know, the relations are are you know positive. Um, and so uh but they also have you know you know decent relations with these countries also have decent relations with with Russia um and, and China at the same time. So these are relatively safe ways to sort of diversify you don't have the sort of the democracy, auto, uh, human rights uh, issues. Um, they, you know, have pretty good relations with everybody around. Uh, and so I think, you know, this is is, is an important driver. Um, and I would definitely think, you know, things such as, you know, investment in, um, you know, the tourism, I think we're going to probably see a little bit more in lo- some in logistics, air, but also agribusiness, um, IT, all those things. Um, you know, I think that that is good um, because, you know, unlike everything that China has done, um, and I think this next stage uh, of Chinese uh, in, uh, engagement, economic engagement, might also be a little bit positive because it's not just building infrastructure and throughput. You know, some of this could actually build um, uh, you know greater um, opportunities uh, in Central Asia. Uh, I'd also like to bring up one other country, um, which is uh, India, um, uh, because I think you know India is a, is a country to watch uh, both because of you know this budding IT sector um, in Central Asia. Well, you know, India is is you know that's one of its premier. Um, uh, it's a premier. Global uh, country for for IT, um, but also um, you know I think just like uh, Turkey is an alternative um, in sort of security, particularly you know defense um, uh, purchases. Um, uh, India can be um, uh, as well, um, and I think we're we're probably going to see a lot more uh, discussions on that front coming up. Particularly as you know, Russia is struggling to refill and, and create um, its own components uh, to keep its own military a- alive, um, and sanctions are just going to make that worse. Well, you know, this is um, uh, India is a place that they certainly could could look to um, uh, as well as a, as an alternative, and so I think that's something we should probably be watching as well.
0: Okay, great. Thanks. And uh, I want to turn to the S- Central Asian governments themselves. Uh, you know, certainly this situation is presenting some opportunities for them also, uh, because we do have all these other uh, countries which were kind of at arm's distance for a while, but now are showing much greater interest in, in Central Asia. And I would even include the European Union in this. Um, so uh, my, my question is, what What have the Central Asians been able to, that you see, that they've been able to gain for this? And if I could just start the ball rolling by mentioning the fact that, you know, we have seen a presidential election and and change of constitution in Kazakhstan. Uh, We've seen a change of constitution. We're about to see another presidential election in in Uzbekistan. You know, you get the impression that the Western governments are are leaning off these countries over incidents like Karakal, Pakistan, the violence there last year, Uh, you know, or or Gorno badakhshan and Tajikistan, because they don't want to push... These countries back into the Russian camp or do anything that would push them back But the Central Asians seem to be taking advantage of that because this muted criticism allows them to consolidate their own regimes for one thing But do you see that happening or do you see any other ways in which the Central Asians are actually using Russia's war to their own advantage domestically and Paul I'll start with you
1: uh, you know yes I mean uh, certainly um, you know we saw some of those financial uh, flows that came that came in uh, I would agree I mean I think a lot of that was um you know, was capital flight over the last year. So it's probably not going to repeat itself. But that certainly helped, you know, shore up economies over the past year. So they've been able to take advantage uh, of that in in some ways. Um, I do think uh, we are seeing less of a a criticism, uh, particularly of Uzbekistan and and Kazakhstan. I think the West sees those as the most important interlocutors for the entire uh, region. Uh, Honestly, you know, sitting here in Washington, there's not much hope for Turkmenistan, not much hope for Tajikistan. All the indicators are going back. But you know, we although we've seen you know slowing on the reform front uh, all around, I think the West is still betting. On Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, um, and they also see both of these countries as uh, important uh, for promoting uh, regional cooperation. And I think, you know, if you hear uh, here in Washington, um, you know, regional cooperation also helps build the region's resilience. It's not just one country vis-a-vis Russia or one country vis-a-vis China. Um, if they're working together, it's a bigger market. They can attract more, more, more investors. Um, uh, bigger market, you know, for people to uh, to sell to, uh, but also you know, bigger clout. Um, globally, if they're if they're working together, so I, I definitely see uh, a little bit of back off on, uh, particularly in criticizing Uzbekistan and and, and Kazakhstan. Um, you know, there, there's still silent uh, and quiet criticism going on, and lots of conversations. Um, but I think you know some of the the vocal um, things that we've heard in the past past few years are there. Um, and I think we're also you know seeing more more interest. Um, uh, you know, the the IT sector. Um, you know, I've had a lot of Japanese and Korean people come and, and, and talk to me about opportunities there because um, they also recognize, you know, maybe the Chinese will go in there. So I think, you know, we're seeing, you know, it's not just, you know, the Europeans. We're seeing, um, you know, other Asians who've traditionally been there, but marginal players are also suddenly uh, looking uh, back again. Um, and they also, you know, they're not going to talk about uh, human rights either.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, Fran? To you, do you see uh, any of the Central Asian countries or or uh, Central Asia as a region um, actually profiting recently from the the changes since Russia launched its war in Ukraine?
3: Yes, I mean, I I agree with both uh, you and Paul and what you were saying. And I would add, to some extent, when it comes to the the EU and Uzbekistan, of course, I think part of it is, you know, uh, trying to... They realized, uh, in terms of foreign policy, that uh, it's more of a reliable partner, them and, and Kazakhstan, uh, in the last in the last years, and not wanting to push them too hard. But also, I think some circles in Brussels there's probably a bit of a naivete towards towards Uzbekistan. I mean, the Uzbek regime has done great PR public relations, uh, let's say, efforts in the last in the last five years or so. So I think there's also. Many of the some people in Brussels have actually bought in into the into the reform of narrative into the narrative of reforms and and so on. So I think it's on the one hand is what uh, you, you and Paul mentioned, and also also on the other hand, I think there's a bit of a they've actually believed or they've bought into some of that those uh, PR campaigns, which reminds one also of uh, what Kazakhstan did in the in the past. So there's there's a clear a benefit there then from an economical point of view we could also look into well the 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 secondary reexportation of of goods uh, through mostly Kazakhstan that the goods uh, consumer goods so it's in a small scale but uh, that's probably also also had an impact and then we also see uh, the EU starting to court or you know again there's the talks of uh, bringing gas from from Turkmenistan or you know the the topic was dead for 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 a few years so it's reignited that interest of course uh the difficulties are uh, are tremendous, and you know it's, it's very unlikely that's ever gonna happen but it's bring back to the it's brought back to the to the conversation topics that are were probably long gone or you know they were in in a drawer somewhere full of dust in brussels, and they're starting to bring those back out so you know potentially there's there's ways that uh that the tremendous in this case could could uh, benefit even though in the end uh, they might not actually do anything uh, any actions but uh, they could uh, become more even more lenient uh, with the with that, that regime in particular
0: okay thank you and Nargis uh, give you the last word on this in <laughs> thank you. Uh, is, are they finding some advantage in this situation for themselves uh,
2: well what you started with with the uh, with the political political elites uh, I think it's complicated uh, political elites and human rights um Good governance agenda. I think it's complicated because on the one hand, indeed, the war in Ukraine overtook all the other agendas, and the uh, the the priority is to make sure the the countries are not aligning too much with uh, with Russia is not are not helping Russia. Uh, So in this sense, yes, they can you know the the uh, the governments can get away with it. But on the other hand, we do need the West. Uh, more than ever, so it is of uh, of, uh, it, of existential nature now, which creates some leverage for for the West actually to uh, to push. So, but 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 of course, it you know it needs to be calibrated, and it will not be. It is not easy. It will not be uh, easy in terms of opportunities. Yes, yeah, some opportunities uh, did arise, and uh, there are hopes to kind of to become um, the this economic bridge and the, the, as Tokayev said it, uh, uh, we want to become the economic buffer zone between north and south, east, east and west. So that the, that's the, the goal of the efforts uh, and there are companies relocating and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but at uh, the but there is also some skepticism of what can work out. We definitely need uh, need a corridor and uh, Kazakhstan and Uz- Uzbekistan to some extent are pushing for this middle corridor. The EU is ready to support the middle corridor. Turkey is, that's, that's Turkey's uh, project. But it's not sure yet whether it would work out or, or not. The obstacles are, are considerable. I think what Central Asians can do and should do is to develop regional cooperation um, and we see some, some signs of that now and, you know, kind of we can be cautiously optimistic. I would think if we can cooperate, coordinate, then, uh, then the region can be of interest, to, of more interest to, um, to other players, to the European Union and to US and, um, and to the others. So let's, let's see how it goes. I think we, uh, we have a lot on our plate and uh, uh, the challenge is high, but I, I, I hope that the sense of crisis will help.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, obviously, we could devote a three- or four-day seminar to these topics that we've been covering today, but I do thank you all for for helping me and our audience to understand what's been changing in Central Asia. So thank you, Fran and Nargiz and Paul. And a big thank you, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjly's podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjly's podcast or the Central Asian Focus newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe Radio Liberty's website at RFARL.org. Thanks, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.